0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org
1: students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. Just a key. A key. A key.
0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Part. Of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we return to our ongoing series, The Many Loves of Howard Hughes. You may remember that at the end of our first episode in this series, after his first marriage had ended and Billy Dove had left him, Howard Hughes went on a dating binge. It was during this period that Hughes first met and seduced the then 16-year-old Ida Lupino, in addition to any number of other famous faces, wannabe starlets, and straight-up floozies. But one of the most frequent dinner guests at Hughes's Hancock Park mansion in this era was no lady at all. It was his friend, Cary Grant, with whom Hughes would stay close until the end of his life. It was a friendship so intimate that some biographers have insisted it was romantic. To say that such claims have been disputed would be to put it mildly, but what is not in dispute is that Cary Grant is directly responsible for Hughes's highest profile romance of the late 1930s, and maybe of his entire life. Although how romantic that relationship actually was is also up for debate. Join us, won't you? As we attempt to learn what really happened between Howard Hughes and Katharine Hepburn. Cary Grant introduced Howard Hughes to Katharine Hepburn in 1935 on the set of the George Cukor film Sylvia Scarlet. Hepburn had arrived in Hollywood in 1932, fresh off of a success on Broadway, and immediately she starred in three big hits, Cukor's A Bill of Divorcement, Little Women, and Morning Glory, for which she won her first Oscar in 1934. But a couple of flops followed, and she was a controversial figure in the media. She had become famous for her role in a bill of divorcement, but she had become notorious for going around in public wearing pants. The public loved her as a tomboy in Little Women, but they'd reject her in movies like Christopher Strong, in which she played a butch, Amelia Earhart-like aviator, and in Sylvia Scarlett*, in which she dressed in drag. What Hepburn didn't realize is that there's a difference between being a tomboy and being sexually ambiguous. Tomboyism is a childish phase that one grows out of. A woman who dressed and acted like a man well into her 20s in the 1930s, and nobody laughed that off as a phase. They saw it as deviance. Katherine Hepburn wasn't exactly Howard Hughes' type, but Cary Grant became convinced that the two were perfect for one another, and he started playing matchmaker. Cary called up Howard.
2: Look, Howard, I'm in a bind. You've got to come up to the set for lunch. Each of us promised to invite someone very
0: interesting. Howard insisted that he couldn't break for lunch. Since Scarface, his last effort as a Hollywood producer, Hughes had refocused his attention on aviation. He was working on a new plane, a racer. There were speed records that had been set, and he needed to break them. But Carrie insisted. Howard gave in.
2: All right, but I can't stay long.
0: When Howard had been set up for the first time with his first great love, Billy Dove, he barely said a word all night. He just sat there and stared. And Billy Dove thought he was a zombie. The same thing essentially happened at his first lunch with Catherine Hepburn. While Hepburn, her close friend and director George Cukor, and Grant chattered through the latest Hollywood gossip, Hughes just sat there, completely mute. Hepburn was not impressed. She reminded Cary Grant of their agreement to only bring interesting people for lunch. But it wasn't that Howard wasn't interesting. By that point in his life, repeated aviation accidents had made Howard Hughes almost deaf, And he hadn't been able to participate in the lunch conversation because when more than one person was talking, he just couldn't keep up. Hepburn eventually figured this out, and she gave Hughes another chance. They soon became golf buddies, with Howard angling for more. She may not have been his type, but he genuinely admired her.
1: She's brilliant. She's kind.
0: Hughes gushed of Hepburn to Grant.
1: And she's totally devoid of
0: sham and pretense. She was, he figured.
2: Perhaps the most totally magnetic woman in the entire world.
0: And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. Netsuite.com slash remember. Netsuite.com slash remember. Hepburn, who was called Kate in the press but Kath by those close to her, was somewhat more practical in her assessment of Hughes. He was sort of the top of the available men in the world, she said, and I of the women. And we both had a wild desire to be famous. Of course, that didn't mean that they were a good match. Later, Hepburn would say that people who want to be famous are really loners. Or they should be. By the mid-1930s, Hepburn's first flush of fame had faded. But due to his increasingly high-profile aviation efforts... Howard's star was rising. Over the course of the four years that he was close to Hepburn, Howard Hughes would become the new Charles Lindbergh, an international hero who managed to unite scientific innovation with personal bravery into a uniquely glamorous package. But in the early days of Hepburn and Hughes as a couple, the smitten playboy who had put aside his own Hollywood ambitions for the time being was happy to cede the spotlight to his more famous girlfriend. In December 1936, over a year after their first meeting, Hughes dropped everything in his own life to follow Hepburn around on a nationwide tour of a theatrical production of Jane Eyre. He accompanied her to engagements in Boston, Detroit, Cleveland, and finally, Chicago. It was in this last city that Hughes decided that he needed to abruptly return to Los Angeles to launch his campaign to set a coast-to-coast speed record in his newly-fashioned racer plane. Hughes's plane took off from Burbank at 2.14 AM. Somewhere over Arizona, the aircraft's radio died. At dawn, Howard Hughes was reported missing in the sky. In Chicago, Kath woke up to the front-page headline of the Tribune. Aviation hero lost. A few hours later, Howard's plane suddenly emerged out of the clouds over Newark. He landed on the East Coast seven and a half hours after leaving the West Coast, nearly two hours quicker than the previous record. This was a big deal because it proved that coast-to-coast flights could be safe and efficient. There were hordes of journalists waiting for Hughes on the tarmac, but he pushed through them. The first thing he did upon landing was send a telegram to Katherine Hepburn in Chicago.
2: I'm down at safe at Newark. Love, Howard.
0: When her Jane Eyre tour ended, Kath returned to L.A. and moved into her boyfriend's house. Howard hadn't lived with a woman since Billy Dove had left him six years earlier. To prepare for Kath's arrival, he got rid of the hospital-style twin bed he had been sleeping in ever since, although each half of the happy couple would keep their own separate suites. Neither did much outside of their nature to accommodate the other. They didn't have to. Howard had finally met a woman who wanted to do all the same things he wanted to do. Basically, fly planes and play golf. They'd take his plane everywhere island hopping in the Caribbean, stopping to skinny dip, diving into the ocean from the wing. She rarely suggested they go anywhere where he'd need to wear a tuxedo. Why would she? She didn't even own an evening dress. In late 1937 and early 1938, Hughes started planning another record-breaking flight. He had commissioned a new plane, one that could hold enough fuel to cross the Atlantic. His goal was to circle the globe, and to do it faster than anyone else had before. First, he flew to Washington, London, and Paris to negotiate clearances. He neglected to stay in touch with his live-in girlfriend on this trip. And Hepburn became so distraught that one day, she stepped onto a ledge on the second floor of RKO's makeup building and threatened to jump. Cary Grant had to literally talk her down. Hepburn had reason to worry. While in London, Howard Hughes was totally cheating on her with Woolworth heiress Barbara Hudden, who would later characterize her time in bed with Hughes as something of a physiological and psychological minefield. Kath apparently didn't find out about Howard's British misadventures, at least not right away. In May 1938. Hepburn was one of the half-dozen or so performers named in the infamous box office poison ad, urging studios to cut ties with expensive stars who were no longer luring audiences to movie theaters. This was an honor to which Hepburn responded, If I weren't laughing so hard, I might cry. Hepburn's studio, RKO, didn't need this ad to tell them that their very expensive star had lost her luster. Warner Brothers had tried to get rid of Kay Francis by offering her only terrible movies, assuming she'd refuse to be in them and then they could fire her for breach of contract. That didn't work with money-hungry Kay, but when RKO tried it with Katherine Hepburn, whose brand was all about the actress's patrician pedigree and high standards, it didn't take long before the studio found a property that she couldn't stomach. When Hepburn refused to star in something called Mother Carey's Chickens, RKO suspended her, and Hepburn soon entered negotiations to buy her way out of her contract. That summer, Howard started spending time at Fenwick, the Hepburn family's summer home in Connecticut. Howard Hughes had two goals for the season, to fly around the world and to take Katherine Hepburn as his second wife. But Kath wasn't so sure she wanted to be taken, Her first marriage had been a great disappointment. She had married Ludlow Smith impetuously when she was 22. Luddy, as he was called, was a close friend of Hepburn's, whom she knew had relationships with other men. She had only accepted Luddy's proposal after her own passionate affair with a married man hadn't worked out. She had felt it was a mistake before they'd even left the altar. That time around, Kath had quit acting after taking her vows only to run almost immediately back to an understudy job she had abandoned. When she arrived in Hollywood in 1932, Hepburn was accompanied not by Luddy, but by Laura Harding, a socialite who became Hepburn's live-in companion, and even referred to herself in the press as Hepburn's husband. Her actual husband had stayed behind on the East Coast, and after the gossip press had discovered him and milked many column inches out of, quote, Hepburn's abandoned husband, the pair had divorced in 1934. Now, in 1938, having been branded box office poison, her relationship with RKO Studios soured beyond repair, Hepburn was obsessed with getting her career back on track. Any marriage could have distracted her from that goal, Never mind a marriage to a man whose own increasing fame was starting to make it seem that as long as she was with him, she'd never have the spotlight to herself. Maybe Kath took Howard home to her family's vacation estate in 1938, not because it was a necessary stop on the road to marriage, but because she knew it was one way to ensure that her marriage to Howard Hughes would never happen. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. For one thing, her feminist crusader mother was a big fan of Luddy, who happened to be staying with the Hepburns concurrent to Howard's visit. He had a permanent room at the Hepburns' summer house, even though he and Kath had been divorced for four years. At dinner, Luddy showed off his sparkling conversational skills, which Howard couldn't compete with, being basically deaf. On the golf course, Howard didn't fare much better. Plus, his germophobia was unignorable and frankly unattractive. The whole scene at the Hepburn house had shades of the Philadelphia story, the play and then film through which Hepburn would, over the next few years, launch her comeback. In the story of the Philadelphia story, a headstrong girl's charismatic ex-husband hangs around the weekend of her wedding to another man, ultimately blocking the new nuptials with his charm and strong bond to the family he had once been part of. Ultimately, Luddy had little to do with the fate of Catherine and Howard's relationship. As rocky as Howard's time in Connecticut had been, in late May, Luella Parsons got word that Hepburn and Hughes were set to marry. Kath and Howard privately confirmed the reports, but they weren't ready to set a date. First, Howard Hughes was going to fly around the world. The couple holed up in an apartment in New York together for Howard's last few days on land, right up until the moment when Catherine's chauffeured car drove him to the Long Island airstrip from which he'd depart. One of Hughes's biographers implies that they spent the whole time in bed together. Another suggests that they were mostly occupied making the ten pounds of sandwiches, which Hughes was determined to bring on board as his provisions. Catherine, by way of farewell before her fiancé embarked on this dangerous journey, casually asked that Howard do her the favor of keeping her posted. her. Hughes' response?
2: You'll hear from me, kiddo. See you in three days.
0: Kath had the car take her straight from the airstrip to her family's home, where the whole Hepburn clan clustered around the radio for the duration of Howard's trip. She called it Howard's Grand Adventure, and as though they had scripted it together over that weekend... The plan was that they'd celebrate his return with a grand finale, a wedding. That was assuming he made it back alive. At the moment the nose of Hughes's plane turned up into the air, Atlantic City bookies had Howard's odds of completing the flight around the world at 50-50. 16 hours after takeoff, Howard made his first stop in Paris. Part of the plane's landing gear broke off when he hit the ground. C'est fini claimed the French mechanic. Hughes insisted.
2: We'll be back in the air in
1: an hour.
0: Actually, the repair took eight hours, leaving Hughes far behind schedule. He decided to make up time by flying over Nazi Germany, despite the fact that he had already requested permission to enter their airspace, and Hitler had expressly forbidden it. Hughes was confident.
1: I don't think they'll shoot us down.
0: They didn't, and at 4 a.m. Moscow time, Hughes made his next scheduled stop. In the air above Siberia, it was so cold that Hughes peed in a jar and held it in his hands to keep warm. By this time, the world was riveted. Everyone was listening to the radio. Reporters were camping out in front of Hepburn's New York townhouse, unaware that she was in Connecticut. At Fenwick, Hepburn was acutely aware that between herself and Howard, two people who desperately craved fame, the balance of power had shifted she was an out-of-work movie star. Her peeing-in-a-jar fiancé was becoming a world-changing hero. When Howard landed in New York, he was mobbed, and then ushered into a reception at a hotel with the mayor and other dignitaries. Hughes had been on an airplane for almost four days. He had peed in jars to stay warm. He asked if they would excuse him for a moment while he went upstairs and freshened up. 30 minutes later, when he hadn't returned, the guy who was sent up to check on him found no trace of Hughes. He had slipped out the window and hopped into a cab to rendezvous with Katherine Hepburn. During Howard's victory lap, a stretch of weeks when he was the most famous man in America, if not the world, Howard Hughes urged Katherine Hepburn to set a wedding date. He gave her an ultimatum. She had three days to decide. This was exactly the kind of pressure, the kind of limit on her independence, which made Kath resistant to marriage in the first place. On the afternoon of the third day, Carrie Grant got involved.
2: You make the move, old boy,
0: Grant said to Hughes. Hughes refused, so Grant called Hepburn and said basically the same thing. But she refused. She had made up her mind. For one thing, she wasn't going to be bullied. For another, Somewhere between Hughes's departure from Long Island and the literal hero's welcome that greeted him when he returned, she seemed to have lost her taste for the relationship. She was not going to be Mrs. Howard Hughes. This is one version of the story of how Catherine Hepburn and Howard Hughes's relationship ended. Another is that Hughes went into seclusion on his yacht for a month after the victory parades ended, and then sometime in August, Kath, who hadn't heard a word from him, read in the newspaper that Howard had been seen around town with other women. What really happened? We don't know. But one thing is certain. After he flew around the world, as his relationship with Hepburn was winding down, Howard Hughes went a little nuts in the womanizing department. Maybe he was just girl crazy, or maybe he decided that if Katherine Hepburn wouldn't marry him, he'd find a famous actress who would. He hedged his bets by proposing to a lot of them. Less than two days after Kath's deadline passed, Hughes sent roses to his ex-girlfriend, Ginger Rogers, who wasn't just Hughes' sometime companion, but also Hepburn's rival at RKO. The two had even just starred together in a film, Stage Door. While Hepburn's movie career had sunk, Rogers's had risen, thanks to her song and dance movies with Fred Astaire, which continued to mint money throughout the decade. Soon, Hughes threw a party for Rogers in New York, where he knew Kath was living, and with which he knew the local gossips would have a field day.
2: This episode is brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie. And that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Is there any evidence that Howard Hughes' romancing of Ginger Rogers was, at least in part, a ploy to regain Katherine Hepburn's attention? Well, there's this. On the same afternoon as the party he threw for Rogers, Hughes purchased a controlling stake in The Philadelphia Story, the play which Philip Barry had written with Katherine Hepburn in mind. With Howard's backing, the play would make it to Broadway, and as a gift, he gave the rights to the property to Hepburn, which she used as leverage to control the production of the eventual film made by MGM in 1940, the film of The Philadelphia Story would become Katharine Hepburn's comeback vehicle, and one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made. Maybe, in the absence of Hughes, Hepburn could have, or would have, come back from box office poison jail in some other way, under some other circumstances. But she didn't, and it was Howard Hughes who made The Philadelphia Story happen— in the way that it happened. If this was Howard Hughes's ploy to win Katharine Hepburn back, it didn't work. And maybe it was just a rare goodwill gesture because within hours after having bought the rights, Howard Hughes proposed to Ginger Rogers. She was separated from her husband at the time, but technically still married, so she demurred. Days later, at a charity dinner, Hughes met Betty Davis, another Hepburn rival who in 1938 was in the midst of leapfrogging over Kay Francis at Warner Brothers as the studio's biggest female star. Davis and Hughes had a brief affair, and it seems like it ended with Betty holding a grudge. In one of her biographies, she offers this assessment of Hughes's sexual prowess. Howard Hughes. He was not. Hughes continued to pursue Ginger Rogers, one night, he drove her up to a secluded, vacant hilltop over Hollywood and told her he was going to buy the land and build a house for her on top of it. Sounds sweet, but Ginger was scared. She had an eerie feeling that Howard Hughes wanted to make her his prisoner. Still, Rogers soon thereafter accepted a massive emerald from Howard. She wore it as a sign of commitment. How shocked would you be to learn that Howard wasn't so committed? While Ginger was wearing his ring, Hughes started pursuing Olivia de Havilland and her sister, Joan Fontaine. He called up Olivia and asked her out after Luella Parsons published a false story claiming she and Hughes were already engaged. Then, as soon as Olivia was next on location, Hughes went to a party celebrating Fontaine's engagement to another man, and cornered the bride-to-be on the dance floor he whispered in her ear.
1: Forget it, you're going to
2: marry me.
0: Joan was appalled that a man would so blatantly two-time her sister, but she went out with Howard another couple times just to see if he was serious. When she figured he was, Joan told her sister, and that was the end of Howard's relationship with both of them. By this time, rumors of Hughes's rampant man-whoring had reached Ginger. One day, he insisted that she accompany him to the dentist, and she refused. That afternoon, Hughes got into a car accident, which knocked him out and landed him in the ICU. When he came to, he demanded to see Ginger. When she arrived in his room, he blamed the car accident on her.
2: This is all because of you. When you refused to go to the dentist with me, I was so upset I crashed into another car.
0: Ginger Rogers didn't apologize. She threw the emerald ring at his face, and that was the end of that. And so, Howard Hughes' efforts to replace Katharine Hepburn with a star of equal or better stature had failed. He was 35 years old, and he would never again become romantically or sexually involved with a woman his own age. He generally stayed away from women who had lives of their own which took precedence over his needs, and women whose behavior he couldn't control. Of course, as much as Howard Hughes was a man of habit, he also contained his share of contradictions. He may have lost the taste for independent women in the bedroom, but then he went and gave the most independent of all of the women he had ever been involved with a bedroom. In 1940, after they had broken up, Katharine Hepburn moved into the guest house at Howard's Hancock Park estate. she had returned from New York to film The Philadelphia Story, and this arrangement, which lasted about a year, seemed convenient. She and Howard did not get back together. In fact, soon thereafter, she would begin her long relationship with Spencer Tracy. Although, she did keep a diamond and sapphire brooch given to her by Howard until her death. In her memoirs, Catherine intimated that the relationship with Hughes had just lost its spark. That it ever had a spark is an open question. Even putting aside the rumors that both Catherine and Howard preferred the company of their own sex in the bedroom... Both of them had well-documented problems with sexual intimacy in general. She just didn't like it much, and he was often impotent. Catherine, who had tried to hide her first husband but made no secret of the fact that she lived with another woman, also had an image problem. She was too independent and not feminine enough for middle America. That was an image problem that a dashing aviation hero boyfriend went a long way towards solving. The Philadelphia story, in which Catherine's character gets a good dressing down, did most of the rest of the work. Howard's reputation as a Lothario bolstered Catherine's femme cred, even if it wasn't exactly accurate. The truth was, Ginger Rogers' premonition wasn't that far off. Hughes liked to collect beautiful, famous women. Being seen as one of the great lovers was more important to him than actually loving. When next we speak about Howard Hughes, he will have returned to the director's chair and found a way to unite two of his greatest loves, structural engineering and boobs. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and hosted by Karina Longworth. That's me. And Noah Segan played Howard Hughes. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Please look us up on iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And find us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. Join us next time for another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.